Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome, everybody, to this throwback edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your returning temporary host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. You know, just when you thought you were rid of me, I am back filling in for Nipun Chopra for the next month as he is in India. Call it a familiar voice coming back into your life. Of course, one familiar voice that hasn't left you recently, my co-host, Kartik Krishnayar. Kartik, how have you been? I've been good, Richard. Great to be back with you. I've actually been more recently on a pod with you than <laughs> on World Soccer Talk, just because we've had some technical difficulties with um, with our pod. So uh, we, we recorded the show for, y- for y'all on Sunday, and we weren't able to get it out. So uh, we apologize for those technical difficulties. Yeah, speaking of technical difficulties, I'm on the road right now. Normally, I'm in Portland, Oregon. I've been spending the last week in Southern California. I'm in Northern California right now, uh, just outside the, the San Jose Earthquake Stadium, ahead of tonight's San Jose New York Red Bulls game. And as a result, Skype has decided not to let Kartik and I be co-hosts for the show. We're coming to you over traditional telephone lines tonight, at least one of us. But the important thing is we're going to talk about the midweek action in Europe. Today, some some earth-shaking uh, results in Champions League to the extent that the earth ever shakes over soccer results. We're also going to talk about Thursday's match in Europa League, at least the big one between Borussia Dortmund and Liverpool. And then this weekend's action in the Premier League where the fights for fourth and the relegation battle are going to be in focus. But Kartik, let's start with Wednesday's results in Champions League and doesn't have much bearing on the Premier League, but a lot of focus was on the match at the Vicente Calderon today where Atletico Madrid went into their game against Barcelona down 2-1, having given up two goals with 10 men at the Camp Nou last week. Two goals from Antoine Griezmann puts Atleti through into the semifinals for the second time in three years, eliminating Barcelona at the quarterfinal round. A lot of people surprised by this one, Kartik. To what extent were you surprised with today's result? Um... That's a very good question because at the beginning of the tie, I, I, when the draw was made that day, yet people who followed me on Twitter probably saw that I thought Atleti could beat them and could beat them over two legs, one nil basically, uh, and maybe get an away goal at uh, the Camp Nou in the first leg, be up one nil and sit on, on, on that game and then sit on the game back at the Calderon. Now, it was going according to plan for me until Torres uh, committed that stupid second uh, yellow card offense and got himself sent off 
with 61 minutes and, and stoppage time left remaining in the first match at the Camp Nou. And, of course, true to Barca form, uh, they kept a lot of the ball. Uh, they weren't able to finish chances until they finally broke through and they got the two goals. So then I thought after the first leg, you know, you know what, it's over. I had, I had a game plan in my mind. I think it was the same game plan Simeone had in his mind uh, that would have carried Atleti, and Torres just really blew it for all of us. So <laughs> I didn't put much on today. Uh, so I guess I get uh, uh, half credit for this because before the tie, I thought it might be very well could win. I went on record saying they could win. Uh, but the path to victory that I envisioned was blown out of the water by, by that red card or that second yellow that, that's sending off for Torres. But today they really, uh, they came good. Gre- uh, Griezmann with the, uh, with the goal, uh, a fantastic finish, uh, some great defending, clutch defending. Godin, we've seen do this time and again. I thought Oblock was very good in, in goal. He's, he's typically very good. He's one of the more underrated keepers uh, in world football. And uh, I, you have to just mar- marvel at Letty's organization, their shape, their structure, and their spirit. For a lot of this match, even though Atletico spent most of the day hovering around 20% possession, they got it up to around 28 by the end of the match, but Barcelona went most of this match without a shot on target. It was, in that way, a stereotypical Atletico performance, clearly the best defense in Europe, uh, even though Barcelona has some shouts for a penalty at the end of this one, I don't think anybody is going to argue that Atletico didn't deserve their semifinal spot. Kartik, I think the natural thing here is to reflect on what Atletico has accomplished. And we find ourselves doing this seemingly every three or four months over the last three years or so. Seemingly, Atletico keeps going to new heights. Of course, they were in the Champions League final two years ago when they also won La Liga. But for some reason, this seems a little bit more special because this Barcelona team has been so great and so dominant, even though they've hit a wall this month. And there was the perception a couple years ago that Atletico was a bit of a Cinderella story. It was kind of a magical season. It wasn't going to happen again. Well, Atletico has sustained. They have finished in the top three last year again in Spain. And this year, they are now mounting another title challenge. And it's very difficult to put into words what Diego Simeone has been able to do for that team. They have some resources, but they still can't spend as much as Real Madrid and Barcelona. Yet at this point, we have to confess that they are every bit as good as their two Spanish rivals. Absolutely. And they do it in a different way. They're, they're defensively organized. They're very sound uh, structurally. There's this great team spirit in the squad, and they can lose players and continue to, uh, to to replace them. Just think about the number of strikers they've lost through the years. And then to see Arda Turan come on for Rakitic, which, by the way, may yeah. not have been uh, the smartest substitution for, uh, uh, for, for Luis Enrique, but uh, to see Turan come on and lose to Atlanta. You know, I thought when they lost him to Barca, that was a sure sign, okay, it's over. Teams being dismantled, Barca, Real Madrid, Bayern, those clubs, Chelsea, they'll just pick the pieces they want, and, and it's over. And Tehran has come back to face Atleti at the Calderon and lost in a Barca shirt. Just think about the symmetry of that. <laughs> it, it does say a lot about how the two teams go about building their squads. It's just incredible. Atletico into the Final Four again and really established themselves as a consistent power in Europe, something none of us could have foreseen three weeks ago. Let's flip the coin over here, Karting, and let's talk about Barcelona. Do you think anything less of Barcelona as a result of this outcome? No, nobody in the Champions League era has repeated this. Uh, champions of Europe, and the closest we got to it was maybe Manchester United in 2009, and then Barca blew them out of the water, and, and then we see how difficult it is to repeat. That Barca team that people now are thinking is the best of the modern era 
get beat by Inter the next season over two legs. And uh, Bayern, we've seen only win one Champions League in this era of great uh, Bayern domination, where they got gotten to uh, uh, the semifinals of the Champions League uh, now with this win today that we'll talk about shortly, six out of the last seven seasons, they've been in the semifinals of the Champions League, but they've only won one Champions League in, in that period. So uh, it, it's very difficult. I mean, there was a period of time where Real Madrid couldn't get past the round of 16. Keep that in mind for years and years and years. So uh, I, I think we may put too much emphasis on uh, how dominant Bayern, Barca, and Real Madrid have appeared to have become versus the rest of the field in Europe. And, and uh, remind uh, ourselves that they have to face one another and then they have to face sides like Atleti and Borussia Dortmund and others that pop up for a couple of years here and there uh, that, are, that are tough to get out of the way yeah. and tough to defeat uh, on a regular basis. Look, Atleti were very unfortunate they didn't get by Real Madrid last season. They eliminated Barca two seasons ago, uh, and then they were unfortunate in the final that year against Real Madrid as well. Uh, they've proven they can uh, hang with anyone in Europe. And it is a lesson along the same lines that you were talking about against thinking that things are too predictable in European soccer, that the powers that have all this money, that spend all this money, are somehow impenetrable or invincible. As if the Premier League season this year hasn't taught us that on England's front, we have Dortmund bouncing back from a bad year in Germany to sustain this title challenge far deeper in the year than anybody thought they could. We have Atletico Madrid now within arm's length of Barcelona in Spain. I think that we get too used to thinking that dominance is sustainable for longer than it is. Even Barcelona this year, as they had an undefeated streak that approached 40 games before Real Madrid beat them at the Camp Nou... It's just so easy and in that way so lazy to think that what's happened recently can continue. The only place where lazy analysis works is when you're talking about Arsenal because they finish in the same place (laughs) in the league every year and they finish at the same, they get eliminated in the same round of Champions League every year. But other than that, (laughs) uh, we have to. Uh, push push against these stereotypes. Wow, if you had the under on Kartik and I getting to Arsenal, uh, you, you're drinking right now because we didn't even make it to the 10-minute mark before hitting <laughs> on one of our favorite topics. Uh, Kartik, you already mentioned this result. I don't think there's much to say about Bayern and Benfica. Benfica certainly put up a bit a better fight than most people suspected. Like every other matchup in the quarterfinal round, it ended 3-2 Bayern with a 2-2 draw today. And Portugal goes through to yet another semifinal. And Kartik, while on one level the 3-2 result probably is closer than most of us thought this would be given the talent of these two teams, it's... Easy to look beyond that and just think about how remarkable it is that Bayern, at the same time that Barcelona has failed to make the semifinals two of the last three years, is back in the final four of this tournament again. Right, so it's uh, five successive years and a six out of the last seven in the semifinals, which is just unbelievable. That's a remarkable record. And for Real Madrid now, I believe it's uh, is it six straight seasons in the in the uh, final uh, Yeah, three uh, Mourinho, four? three Mourinho, two Ancelotti, and now this year. Right, and before that, there were seven consecutive seasons they lost in the round of 16. So there is some hope for Arsenal fans. The difference being Real Madrid won some league titles in that period. But uh, the similar to Arsenal's streak of round of 16 exits right now, those of you who are newer fans may not realize Real Madrid, after their initial Galactical era uh, began, had that, um, had that real run of misfortune yeah. for a long time. They're getting eliminated by the likes of Leon. Uh, on multiple occasions, they got eliminated by Bayern a year that Bayern was so bad in Germany they didn't even, they didn't even qualify for the Champions League the next year. So they um, they've had 
uh, some bad luck. Uh, they've had some bad times before that. Bayern has been remarkably consistent and able to play through a lot of injuries. Pep has had to do a lot of reshuffling with this team. So uh, this is probably the best job he's done at Bayern this season because he's had to reshuffle their back line so much, and they've been run real close by uh, Borussia Dortmund. I think Dortmund would probably win just about any other league in Europe. And that might include La Liga. I don't think it does, but it might. They would certainly win the Premier League or Liga uh, or the, the Serie A. So this is uh, uh, a kind of an underrated job Pep has done this season, given all the injuries. Yeah, the expectations are so high there. I don't think anybody is going to appreciate him consistently getting to the semifinals, but in light of what other teams have done, other teams with similar talent, it really is a remarkable feat. We'll see who they end up drawing in the semifinals because it could be his future team, Manchester City. Let's put that off and save that for the finale. Let's talk about the other uh, tie that was resolved on Tuesday. Wolfsburg went to the Santiago Bernabeu on the backs of a 2-0 upset last week over Real Madrid. Cristiano Ronaldo with a hat-trick puts Real Madrid into the Final Four. The thing about this result that I find weird, Kartik, is Real Madrid players and some of the media acting as if there was, was some kind of great comeback. Did you ever really doubt that Real Madrid was going to overcome that two-goal deficit? I mean, I guess I doubted a little bit, but I always thought Real Madrid was still going to go through. Yeah, no, I thought it was going to be a lot like uh, Byron's comeback against uh, with the Porto last year when they were down mm. uh, 2-1 after the first leg and then just absolutely they had the tie one within uh, 15 minutes of the home leg, the second leg. In fact, it didn't turn out that way. Uh, yes, Real Madrid got two quick goals from Ronaldo, quick hat-trick, but uh, Wolfsburg actually had uh, several chances after those first two goals from about minutes 20 to minutes 45, minute 45 I would say they had four good chances, and they should have buried one of them. Yeah. So that, to me, was really surprising, because I thought I came into this thinking Real Madrid was just going to run away with it, and that they would win 5-1 or something, and we would, we would just look back and say, okay, well, it was a one-off, that first match. In fact, in spite of winning the second leg 3-0, they were incredibly open, and uh, Wolfsburg just didn't take their chances. They, they mm. should have advanced. Yeah, Paulo Enrique in particular with what the kids like to call a guilt edge chance. It'd probably be thinking about that one for a while because had he converted that, Wolfsburg goes through on away goals. We've put it off long enough, Kartik. Let's talk about the result that's close to your heart. Manchester City with a 1-0 win over Paris Saint-Germain. They make it to the Final Four of Champions League for the first time in club history. Tell us your reactions, Kartik. Well, it was amazing as a fan to experience that and the kind of night it was at the Etihad and and the spirit and the, the excitement within the crowd. I mean, uh, a lot of times Manchester City has a static atmosphere uh, since moving from Main Road. And, and uh, we see it at various times in the league, and we see it actually more often than not on European nights because uh, in their midweek games, uh, this competition has not really been warmed up to by City supporters. You even see it with the booing of the UEFA anthem before the game. That's, that's actually a, a tradition now. <laughs> I, I know the commentators picked up on it this time, but that's something that's been um, frequently happening for some time now. And uh, yet there was this fantastic uh, energy and, and atmosphere on the ground that, that spread to the side. And, and uh, Aguero and, and Silva in particular, who have been kind of hit or miss lately, were really uh, playing uh, with, with their hearts on their sleeves early in the match. Aguero misses a penalty, unfortunately. But uh, De Bruyne coming back into the team, uh, there's not much... Uh, more you can say about that. I mean, that's really kind of transformed City and made you think, what if he hadn't, uh, he hadn't uh, gotten injured? Could they have pushed for the league title? 
possibly, although I don't see a whole lot of cracks in, in Lester's armor. I know we'll get to that later in the show. Um, the, the other thing I think needs to be pointed out from this tie, I don't know if people saying it, Mangala and Otamendi were tremendous. We're finally kind of justifying the investment made on, on those two center backs. Uh, the flip side of the equation is once again, Blaton has failed in Champions League and once again, uh, PSG has failed and, and, and Laurent Blanc. So, uh, that's 14, uh, trips to, uh, uh, the Champions League for Zlatan without winning, uh, uh, a Champions League. We know, uh, Inter won it after he left. Barca won it right before he got there. Uh, it, 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 Milan won it before he was there. Uh, it's, it, it's, uh, it's a tough one for, for the player. It really is because it's not on him, but, uh, unfortunately, I, 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 from, from, for him, I don't think he's going to win this, uh, greatest prize in European football or European club football in his career. Yeah, and it stands in such stark contrast to the almost unprecedented success he's had on le- at the league level. It, it, it is an amazing curiosity. And by the way, in those, 14, in those 14 seasons, I think, well, okay, so the first season, uh, we don't put it in there. I think in the last 13 seasons, he's won the league 12 times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the That's only, amazing. Yeah, and the only time is when he finished second with a Milan team that has since collapsed to mediocrity in Serie A. Right, and had won the title the previous year. The, the year he got there, they won the title very unexpectedly. Then the following season, they ran Juve close. Uh, he leaves to PSG uh, at the Thiago Silva significantly. And it's not just Ibra. Those two players, uh, those two players go to PSG, and uh, Milan has been a mid-table team basically since. Hmm. Let's talk about PSG for a little bit, and then let's dovetail back to Manchester City, because as you mentioned, there are a lot of aspects of the team that played on Tuesday that deserve credit, but there there was a lot of controversy surrounding PSG and one of our favorite managers, Laurent Blanc, because somewhat inexplicably, he decides to go to a three-center-back system out of the blue against a team that typically plays with a lone striker up front. Uh, Manchester City has been almost exclusively a 4-2-3-1 team this year because they haven't had a second striker consistently performing or consistently healthy to pair with Kun Aguero up top. Yet, Laurent Blanc still goes with three center backs. I think I agree with most of the Twitter universe in being just completely confused by this move. I didn't get it at all. I mean, I was stunned by it. If this was uh, Blanc trying to show his tactical acumen, well, what a time to do that. I, I don't have an explanation for it other than being shocked. And being in such disbelief about it, I didn't tweet it until about seven minutes into the match because I didn't believe what I was reading on Twitter and didn't believe what I was seeing on the pitch to be actually their formation, but thought they were just asymmetrical or there was some sort of uh, somebody had been pulled out of position, and that's why we saw uh, three guys playing at center back. I was really shocked. And then once Diego Mota, who's really the two-way player who, who shields that back uh, three, uh, or back four normally, right? Once mm-hmm. he gets injured, they were done for. I mean, it was at that point, I didn't want to save and be cocky. As fatalistic as all our listeners know I am about City, I kind of knew the tie was won at that point. When he went off after they had made this, this real faux pas defensively in, in how they set up. Yeah. Uh, in a must-win game, in the best chance that Paris Saint-Germain has had to make the Champions League Final Four since Laurent Blanc Live, or since... Uh, the Paris Saint-Germain revolution began, Laurent Blanc put out a team that only had six shots. Now, granted, four of those were on target. But in a must-win game, when your opponent already has two away goals, you put out a team that only generates six shots when the other team's best defender isn't playing, when the other team's best midfielder isn't healthy enough to start. 
it's inexplicable to me how a team with that much talent could be put in a position to fail so noticeably in their biggest game in, obvi- in uh, potentially club history, or at least recent club history. Let's double back to Manchester City, Kartik. I, I-, I kind of want you to make me a promise, because I don't think I'm going to be on the show much next year, but there is going to be a time when all of the summer transfers are coming in that people will look at a big money buy and say, oh, why is that club buying that player? Because they already have four or five players like that at that position. You know, the Kevin De Bruyne argument that we heard in September of this year. Well, Kevin De Bruyne is showing that Manchester City, even though they had a wealth of talent in attacking midfield, he's showing that he is a special player that transcends whatever depth the team might have on in their squad before the acquisition. He really, really came up big on Tuesday. Yeah, and he came up big in the first leg, too. Uh, he's just a, he's a next-level player, and this is another reason why uh, I, I know uh, Hazard has, has tailed off, but I hate to keep bringing it up, but and now we've had terrorism and all kinds of other distractions in Belgium. But um, I just I still think Belgium is good, probably going to win the Euros this summer because they have they have more of those types of players. And in De Bruyne, it's one we weren't even thinking about two years ago, or mm-hmm. when we were talking about them around the World Cup. We thought he was a, a, a core eleven player for Belgium, but he's now an elite uh, player in world football. He's shown it just by Manchester City with and without him. Uh, Wolfsburg with and without him, you know, with, with him, they, they're running second in the Bundesliga. Without him, they're not going to make it back to Europe. But it, it's, it's an amazing contrast with, with him. Manchester City are close to top of the table. They're sitting two points behind Leicester. Uh, without him, uh, look at it. They're very fortunate they're not behind, uh, West Ham at this point. Uh, West Ham has had some dodgy calls in games. Uh, since our pod was, uh, was lost on Sunday, I'll say that, that they, they should have beaten Arsenal. And, uh, again, another dodgy call did them in, but, um, he's a next level player, and that's why Manchester City broke uh, the club's transfer record to go out and get him. I hate to bring this up, Richard. You know I'm going to. What was Jose Mourinho thinking? <laughs> well, there's a whole list of players at this point, right? Because now we're hearing that right, right. Chelsea might go in for Romelu Lukaku this summer, and it's just what's what's going on at Chelsea? Where that there seems I'll to be no coherent strategy. Thing. Speaking. Speaking of uh, needs right now for them, now they're going to get him back in a year, but uh, they loaned out Christensen for two years, uh, and uh, that's a player that would be started for them right now if they hadn't loaned him out. Mm-hmm. And that was just this summer. No, that's, that's a very good point, and I'm, I'm sure we can make a we, we could probably make a pretty decent starting eleven, a, a starting eleven that's better than the starting eleven that Chelsea has put out there most of this year from the players that either Chelsea has out on loan or have discarded in favor of the players that are currently in the squad. Uh, they need to get get their act together because it doesn't matter how much how many resources you have if you can't use those resources effectively you're going to end up in the situation Chelsea is in now. So Kartik, we have two teams from Spain, the Madrid sides Atletico and Real Madrid in the final four, joined by Manchester City and Bayern Munich. What matchups do you want to see in the semifinal? Probably City Bayern and then the Madrid derby in the semis. Hmm. I uh, I think Atleti is going to win the Champions League. I'm going to go on record and say that right now. And yes, it took them penalties and a fortunate penalty at that to get by PSV in the round of 16. But sometimes these things are written in the stars. We saw that with Chelsea. They never should have gotten past Napoli in the round of 16 that year. Same thing with Atleti this year with PSV. And um, I just got the sense watching the resolve and the purpose in the second half today that uh, they didn't think they'd be back in this position uh, that they were in two years ago. And now that they are, they're going to win it. That's just my sense. So I'd like to see a, a Madrid derby and then the Pep, Pep derby, if you will, 
Uh, and there's been an awful lot of games already between Manchester City and Bayern. They played six times in Champions League games over the course of the last five seasons. So uh, I might as well make it eight. <laughs> well, you get these 180-minute ties. They take on a completely different dynamic, as we saw with Barcelona and Atletico Madrid. Kartik, let's briefly talk about the competition that takes place on Thursdays. Europa League, Shakhtar Donetsk went into Portugal last week, got a 2-1 victory over Braga. They go back to Ukraine and control their tie. Villarreal, 2-1 win at home over Sparta Praha. Sevilla got a 2-1 win at Athletic Club. I'm not sure home field means that much there. Those are both La Liga clubs. But the one matchup we want to talk about, Borussia Dortmund and Liverpool. Liverpool really putting up a good fight last weekend against the Borussia Dortmund team that tried to turn it on in the second half. They still got out of Germany with a 1-1 result. What are your thoughts on this one, Kartik? It certainly seems like Jurgen Klopp leveraging some of the knowledge he has of his old team to bridge the talent gap between the two sides. Right, and, and uh, Origi is beginning to score goals, which we thought when that started to happen, that would be uh, really a bonus for Klopp because he's preferred Origi in that starting 11 to Sturridge and then Teke anyway because of his work rate and the amount of running he does, the amount of chasing he does, closing down on the ball on a high-pressing system. Now all you need is for that striker to start scoring goals. Well, he scored a goal against Dortmund, and then he scored two goals at the weekend against Stoke. And uh, that's a bonus. When you have a striker scoring goals and you're creating havoc with kind of that high press, that high press, uh, that is that is really, really something that uh, Klopp can count on now. Um, they're not going to have Jordan Henderson. He's out. Mm, unfortunately. Joe Allen looked pretty, yeah, that is a, that's a big loss for this particular matchup. I, Joe Allen looked like he was adequate in the league yeah. at the weekend, and Lucas is back, which is, I think, very, very important for them and very good uh, as far as if they want to sit on the game at any point. Uh, Dortmund uh, didn't play particularly well in the first leg. And then uh, this weekend against Schalke, they rotated a little bit. The Amer- young American Christian Pulisic uh, got a start. I think it's for his, only his second start in the Bundesliga this season, a uh, 17-year-old American, our great hope for those of us on this, this side of the Atlantic. And he played very well for about 75 minutes, but uh, uh, they gave away a, a dodgy penalty at the end, a little bit of a dodgy penalty, and, and Huntelar scored. So they, they've now fallen seven points behind Bayern in the league, so they're going to be all in on this competition. And Tuchel, by rotating and keeping Abba Mayang on the bench and keeping um, Royce on the bench and keeping... Uh, a couple of other, uh, Gundogan didn't start. Mm-hmm. Even a couple of their other really star players on the bench indicated to me that he didn't expect the result that Klopp got against him. And obviously, there not only is, has Tuchel taken over from Klopp at Dortmund, for those of you who don't follow the Bundesliga, he took over for him from, from at Mainz also. And their coaching philosophies are very similar, although there's one little thing I think that's different about Tuchel is that his, um, his wide players, to, uh, tend tend to run, uh, make more diagonal runs mm-hmm. in um, in space than uh, the Dortmund wide players did under Klopp. That's one little tactical nuance that's, a, that's different. Not to say that they didn't make diagonal runs under Klopp, but under Tuchel, they're they're running diagonally uh, and like perfectly diagonally, not these kind of wavy runs, um, you know, countless times during the game. But I, I think Tuchel didn't expect Klopp to come to. to uh, the Volstadion and get that result and then that just threw them off for the Derby. Schalke is their biggest rival, for those of you who don't know. Uh, in, 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 in Schalke, Dortmund is one of the biggest Derbys in all of Europe. He ended up uh, you know, rotating and starting a 17-year-old American kid in that game and, and, and several other, uh, Adrian Ramos and these other guys who don't normally start for them uh, because then he realized, my gosh, I've got to have a fresh team, a fresh first team for my uh, trip back to, the, to Anfield on a European night. So, 
Uh, it threw Dortmund off that result, and it probably just cost them any shot they had of catching Bayern in the league. So they're they're all in on this, and uh, this is just this is going to be a classic game. I can't pick a winner. I think it's going to be very close. Yeah, I, I'm not going to dare to pick a winner. I'm just very impressed that Klopp has gotten his team in this position to where. I think somebody can reasonably think that, uh, based on the fact that they're at home and Byron has to, uh, that Dortmund has to travel midweek, that Liverpool's the favorite to go through at this point. You mentioned the difference between Klopp and Tuchel. Uh, Henrik Mkhitaryan gave an interview recently regarding that. And part of the reason that this interview was noteworthy is that he said some things that were very, uh, I guess you can phrase it favorable to Tuchel or, uh, against the how Klopp had him play. And I think it's the style of player that Mkhitaryan is that he wasn't super keen on the constant pressing and constant effort that Jurgen Klopp tries to motivate out of his players. One of the differences that he noted between Klopp and Tuchel is the fact that Tuchel allows his players to shift it into another gear to control the ball and control the pace of the game a little more than Klopp did, who wanted his team to move quickly and boldly and take advantage of uh, transitions and in uncertainty in other teams' defense and create that uncertainty with their pressing. So that's, that's interesting. That goes to the whole diagonal thing I'm talking about, because one thing I've noticed watching uh, Dortmund this season is the number of kind of when they're in possession, the kind of uh, orchestrated, very clearly practiced on the training ground diagonal runs, their wide players, or even a guy like Mkhitaryan who plays centrally, or Abamayang who might start up top, the kind of diagonal runs they make, which they didn't make under Klopp because they were pressing high, and then they were winning the ball in transition, and then guys were just moving, right? It, mm-hmm. it's, diff- it's different. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a great game tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to be in a car while it's happening, but I'm looking forward to uh, catching it when I get home to Portland as uh, it's just as intriguing as any of these Champions League ties were, which is saying something because we've had some very interesting ties in Champions League. We're going to transition into talking about the Premier League here in a second, but Karchik, kind of going off script here for a second, I hope you indulge me. I want to jump down into the championship very quickly because since I was on the show, some things have, well... Some things have changed, but some things have changed the same, uh, stayed the same. So ever since we started updating people on what's going on in the championship, there's been pretty much a steady top six in this league. Uh, Sheffield Wednesday has been lodged in sixth place for a while. Derby, despite their coaching change, has been fifth for a while. But there's been a shakeup in the top four. Now in fourth place, Hull, who a couple months ago looked like they were going to secure a place at the top of the league, they've fallen all the way down to fourth place. Brighton, who got off to a long undefeated run to start the year and then were wayward for a while, well, they're on another run and they're now only two points behind second place Burnley, who are behind Middlesbrough. Uh, the reason I want to talk about this is because at the time when I had to leave the show, that was the time when we thought Aitor Karanka was going to leave the team. Well, things have been resolved since then and now Middlesbrough have won five in a row and with 82 points through 41 games, they're four points up on Brighton in third. And again, they look like they're in the driver's seat to win one of the two automatic promotion spots. What a crazy year in the championship, Kartik. It's always crazy in the championship. But what's going on with Middlesbrough Middlesbrough and Hull seems a little bit crazier than usual. Middlesbrough Middlesbrough more so than Hull. Yeah, so they're on 67 points when uh, you left the show. Uh, And Karanka had just walked out on the team. They played a match against Charlton, who was going to get relegated in this financial ruined because of their owner and their fan protest. Uh, they, and they get beat. They get beat at the Valley 2-0. Shockingly, two days later, and I think that was your last show, was that Sunday, and we talked about that. 
um, Karanka comes back. And I thought, one, he wouldn't go back, and two, Middlesbrough wouldn't have him back. He comes back. They've won five on the trot since he came back. At the time, they were eight points behind Burnley. Burnley has uh, stagnated a bit since there was a late draw. Well, Wolves got a late draw against them. Darby got a late draw against them. So now Burnley are only on 80 points. Uh, Brighton, as you mentioned, under Chris Hutton, once again on a, on a big run, have almost caught, caught Burnley. Uh, and uh, Borough are now back on top. They had an incredibly improbable winner midweek mm-hmm. against Reading. Yeah. Where, uh, yeah, I, I just YouTube, uh, Google it, you'll find a YouTube clip. You, you won't believe, uh, <laughs> you won't believe the winning goal for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whereas three weeks ago they were losing to Rotherham and the bottom of the table, Charlton, as you said, now they're, they seemingly can't lose and they've made up the couple of matches they had in hand, closed that gap that you talked about, and now look like favorites to win one of the spots, not having to go into the playoff. The other end of the championship table, a sad story, Bolton has confirmed relegation to the third tier. They that might be the least of their problems. They are seemingly day by day facing potential winding up orders there. Just a really sad state for Bolton, one of the mainstays of the Premier League for most of the Premier League's existence. They look destined to go down, as do Charlton and Milton Keynes. Those three clubs have broken away from the pack at the bottom of the league. If the season ended today, Middlesbrough and Burnley would go up with Brighton, Hull, Derby, and Sheffield Wednesday into the playoffs. I want to point out something uh, real quickly when you talk about those three teams going down. Rotherham looks like they're going to stay up for a third successive year. Or this will be the second straight year they, they stay up, which means a third successive year in the championship, which is just unbelievable for a club of that size. In an area in Yorkshire where everybody, the Sheffield clubs, Leeds United, Huddersfield, uh, Bradford City, everyone has fallen on hard times. They're really kind of the standout story in that part of the part of the country, and, and, and good for them. Hmm. Yeah, there are always remarkable stories like that in the championship. It's a it's a bigger division. It's they play more games. Uh, a lot of time for this kind of wackiness sounds trite, but that's kind of what it is. These wacky stories to develop because the games come so fast and furiously. You do get teams like Hull who get kind of sidetracked if they go too too long in cup runs and they can't get the well, rhythm Well, that's what back. happened to Hull. Yeah. I, I hate to say that, that, that they went too long in the FA Cup, for yeah, sure. That it's Whether actually making it as far as they did to face Arsenal or having to go to that replay – they haven't been the same since, and it's just it's just weird. Um, but it it is what it is. We see it happen every year. Uh, it's Which caught- is why West Ham fans. I remember when uh, Allardyce basically threw a cup match the year they were down yeah. in the championship, and I had all these West Ham fans on Twitter and the few I talked to regularly saying, "This is disgrace." You know, we're we're the great English club. Well, guess what? They got promoted. They're not complaining about that now. Not making the fourth round of the FA Cup uh, that season, and Allardyce throwing the cup because Al- Allardyce said at the time. On a championship budget with a championship team with 46 games, I can't, I can't have a big cup run. I'm not dishonoring the cup. I'm just being pragmatic and managing my resources. And mm. West Ham was promoted. It could cost Hull, quite honestly, yeah. doing the opposite. And we also see a manager like Nigel Clough at Sheffield United who made his reputation on constantly taking United on cup runs. Eventually, it cost him his job because he could never win promotion. Right. Because the team always went too deep in the cups. Uh, it sounds paradoxical, 
but that's what happened to him. And now he's at Burton Albion. Let's shift our focus to the Premier League card ticket. And since we were just talking about the championship, let's talk about the bottom of the table in the first division where there's still a very active race, even though because there hasn't been a shakeup amongst the three teams that are fighting for that last place in the league, it seems a little static right now. But Norwich, with 31 points through 33 rounds, isn't exactly in that safe of a position. I'm sure Canary fans don't need to be reminded of that, but the rest of the league fans probably do. Sunderland is four points behind them, but they have a match at hand. And as destitute as Newcastle seems, they're six points back and also have a game at hand with six matches to go. If either of those two teams from the Northeast survived, it wouldn't be a great escape. It's really kind of tight at the bottom of the table. Now the matches this weekend, two of those teams are facing off against each other. The first kickoff on Saturday has Sunderland facing Norwich uh, at Carroll Road. Newcastle is going to be hosting Swansea in a game they really must win at St. James's Park in the midday kickoff on Saturday. McCarthy, let's focus on that matchup between Norwich and Sunderland. Norwich has actually been playing reasonably well lately. They have seven points in their last four games. Sunderland, on the other hand, only has three points in that time. It's been quite a time. It's been quite a while since they won a match. In that respect, it's very difficult to imagine Sunderland winning this game. That being said, this is going to be a focus game for Sunderland. It really is almost a last stand. They can't afford to lose ground in this game. So you have to expect if there's any effort left in the squad, we're going to see it on Saturday. Yeah, they haven't played terribly. I mean, uh, again, our pod was wiped out the other day, but we had Chris Chris Hanna on, and he, of course, covers Sunderland and Newcastle, for those of you who remember him when he used to be on the show. And he agreed with my assessment that Sunderland hasn't been playing poorly, and uh, maybe the results will start to come. He he believes Newcastle is down already. Uh, Rafa, even even a manager of his pedigree, uh, the, the squad is hopeless, and, and I tend to agree with that based on what we've seen uh, since Rafa came in. He, yeah, a manager of his, not to interrupt, but I just can't remember a squad that just just seems so soulless. And I think it's almost as if they're, yeah. they they seem to be carrying themselves as if they think they're too good for the situation they're in. Yeah, right, because they have the seventh highest wage bill in the Premier League, by the way, this season, Newcastle. Jesus. So the, the, the usual top six, uh, the big, the old big four plus, uh, plus Manchester City and Spurs, uh, those are your six. It's, it's in this order, Man United, Chelsea, Man City, Arsenal's fourth, fifth is uh, Liverpool, sixth is Spurs. Seventh highest wage bill is Newcastle. Mm. So wow. um, yeah, which which says a whole lot. Uh, so they they're just they're just checked out. So I think they're done. But what Chris and I kind of agreed on is that Sunderland. They, there are moments in each of these games the last month or month and a half where these games that have been draws or losses where if a guy had finished a chance or a guy had made a tackle, they would have won the game. They would have gotten three points. So I don't know if there's anything more Allardyce can do. He's tactically set up the team well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got a, a creative player in Kaziri that they went out and got. Kone has been an upgrade. Kirchhoff has been an upgrade. So the signings have worked out. Um, they just don't have that finisher. Uh, or there's just some something missing. You know, there's there's some mistake that, 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 that happens mm-hmm. at the back. Uh, they get beat on a counter like they did by Vardy the other day. Uh, they, they need to get a draw worse than this game. Obviously, if they lose, I think it's over. Um, I think they'll probably get a draw. That's all they've been getting, right? And mm-hmm. the draw still favors Norwich, but um, it gives uh, an opening for Sunderland still to catch them. But Norwich um, has not played poorly either recently, and mm-hmm. um, it, it, it seems like uh, this game has draw written all over. So the case for Norwich, um, and I, as you note, they've been playing better recently, so looking purely at the table, you see they have 31 points through 33 rounds. That probably understates their quality a little bit at this point. I think uh, 
Mbokani is playing better up front. He's still not necessarily producing goals, but he's a positive contribution at this point, particularly with him and Naismith, their relationship evolving a little bit. They've got Ruddy back in goal. I think the acquisition of Tim Closa in defense has helped. Uh, they're playing more defensively than they were at the beginning of the year when I think they thought players like Nathan Redman and Wes Houlihan could maybe outgun some teams. I don't think they're under that illusion anymore. As you alluded, a draw does serve them here, and you wonder, playing as well as they have recently, with Alex Neal seemingly figuring something out, if Sunderland's task is more difficult based on the fact that the team they're playing against might not necessarily be going for three points. Kartik, let's move to the other major race in the league, and that's the race for fourth place. Manchester City is starting to lock this one down. Whereas a couple of weeks ago, we thought Manchester United and West Ham were going to really push them. Now Manchester City has a four-point lead on their Manchester rivals. West Ham is five points back. Manchester City has a difficult task, maybe a difficult task. I don't think we still have a good grip on how good Chelsea is. But Manchester City goes to Stamford Bridge in the last kickoff on Saturday. Chelsea coming off their first loss in league under Goose Heating this year. Manchester United will play the kickoff time before that, hosting Aston Villa. Aston Villa on track for the third worst record in Premier League history behind only those terrible Derby and Sunderland teams. And then West Ham United will be at Leicester on Sunday. Obviously, they have the most difficult task. It's very difficult to see uh, Leicester dropping points. And if they do, I'm not sure West Ham can expect three instead of one at the King Power Stadium. Talk to me about those games, Kartik. How do you think those three games are going to go down? I think, uh, first off, West Ham is very unfortunate. They've had three successive draws. All three games have had controversial calls, which will cost them the the penalty against Chelsea, the Coyote sending off against Crystal Palace, which was uh, reversed by the league, uh, rightfully so, uh, was at, at worst a yellow card challenge. And then this disallowed goal against Arsenal, which which cost them. Uh, they still rallied to get a 3-3 draw in that game, but um, that, that, I think, was a... Uh, was uh, a, a, a something that cost them three points. So they are pretty much out of this race. I, I still think they'll give Leicester a game. They might get a draw in that game, but that's not going to be enough for them. Uh, as far as Manchester City at Chelsea, Chelsea get a lot of draws, right? So now, yeah. and and it seems like City have spent a lot of their energy on Europe. That's the focus now. By the time that game kicks off, they'll know who they've drawn in the Champions League. So I'm going to say a draw there. And Manchester United. Should win this game. <laughs> Dude, oh, there's but, there was a little too much hesitation there. They're at home against yeah. Aston Villa. I mean, you have to have a lot of skepticism about Manchester United, and, and not that it wouldn't be warranted. But they but they lost at home to both Norwich and Sunderland, the two teams we talked about, Norwich <laughs> and Sunderland, fighting relegation. They lost at home to both those teams this season. Oh, and they drew with Newcastle. So uh, the teams that the other three teams that could get relegated, yeah. along with Villa. Have all uh, have all earned points at Old Trafford. So I, I mean, maybe Villa gets a do- gets a uh, a spirited draw. Oh I could God. see it happening. As crazy as it sounds, that is that really says something about how disappointing Manchester United has been this year. That despite the fact that they're in fifth place, despite the fact that they have a chance to make it back to Champions League, it's still not that difficult to make the case that they could drop points at home to one of the worst teams of the Premier League era. Wow, Manchester United just keeps finding more ways to remind us that this is not Alex Ferguson's Manchester United. Kartik, let's trickle down the table a little bit and talk about some of the games for the teams that are still competing for those last Europa League spots in the Premier League. Seventh place right now is Southampton. They're two points behind West Ham. They're going to be at an Everton team that, despite 
uh, playing with only 10 men for some of the match on Wednesday, got a nil-nil draw at Crystal Palace. Everton's drawn 13 times this year. They're in 12th place, haven't won in five at this point. Right behind Southampton is Liverpool. They're going to be at Bournemouth on Sunday. Bournemouth, a team that is slowly racing towards a top hat finish. They're in 11th place on 41 points. And then Stoke has the toughest challenge of all of the teams that are still on the fringe of Europe. They're going to be hosting Tottenham on Monday. Tell me what you foresee for Southampton, Liverpool, and Stoke. Well, Spurs need to be playing really well right now, but and they need to win that game for for uh, to stay in the title race. They will know the Leicester result, obviously. Leicester's playing Sunday. So I, I had the sense that if Leicester get all three points against West Ham, which is one of the, the games remaining where realistically where Leicester could slip up because then they've got Swansea at home and Everton at home, uh, a trip to Old Trafford where they should get a point at least. And then the, the final game against Chelsea might not matter. I get the sense uh, Spurs might be somewhat dispirited. If, the, if And they might draw this game with Stoke, who looked so awful against Liverpool at Anfield the other day, and you would expect a bounce-back performance. So I'm going to I'm gonna hedge a little bit and say it depends on the Leicester result. Unless they get a full three points against West Ham, I think Spurs will be dispirited. They'll drop points, and the title race will be over. Uh, as far as um, Southampton and Everton, Everton, they draw a lot, as you said. They, they concede a lot of goals. Southampton don't concede many goals, uh, but... Uh, uh, they were beat 3-0 in the, in the reverse fixture earlier in the season, which was one of the, the, mm. the wake-up calls of, about how bad Southampton were early in the season. Southampton have obviously recovered from that slow start. And yeah, that now, seems like uh, so well, long ago. That was so long. But remember, there was a point where we yeah. were concerned about them getting stuck into a relegation fight. Yeah. They started so poorly, and Pella wasn't scoring, and Shane Long was hurt, and, uh, yeah, and Wanyama was getting suspended a lot, and Mane wasn't playing well. Mane's still not scoring goals, but when he plays, he's playing yeah. better. Um, well, the turning point of the year seems to, when Fra- seems to be when Fraser Forrester came back. I don't know if that's just coincidental or yeah. not. But it's... No, I, think it's, I, th- I don't think it's coincidental. I think that has a lot to do with it. Uh, goalkeepers are important. I know we don't like to... We, we give them less attention on this show and on other shows than... than uh, uh, other places, but the, even the organization of their defense, it's not just the saves he makes, but you saw that uh, guys like Font started to play much better once uh, Forster was back, the confidence of knowing you've got a great keeper behind you, and also just the way he organizes the defense. Yeah, so I, I think Sunderland get, a, uh, excuse me, Southampton get at least a point here. Maybe they get all three. Um, look, again, they started the season so poorly. It, it, it's, it's interesting. If you take uh, if you take the season from a certain point, I think uh they're probably pushing for the top four, but uh, they started again so poorly. And then uh, uh, the other game was Liverpool. Liverpool should get something down in Bournemouth. Uh, Bournemouth have played very well of late, obviously, but uh, other than that game against Manchester City last week, Liverpool, I don't know, uh, Richard, this, this might be me going out on a limb. I think Spurs are certainly your title favorites going into next season, but yeah. boy, Klopp has got them playing well now, and he gets a Gundogan and, and maybe he gets a Marco Royce. There's rumors of the, of the Dortmund players going there. Uh, they might be a title I'm, favorite themselves. I'm the looking forward to next got, year. God. Yeah. It, well, yeah, the guys he's got now are playing well for him. So I, I, th- I think Liverpool might run the table in the, in, in the league. And they're not going to get the fourth. It's happened a little late. But right now, and especially the way they went to Dortmund, I don't know that there's another team in the Premier League, including Western Spurs, the top two teams in the league, that could have gone and gotten that result. I, I just think Liverpool, they, they had a lot of bumps, and uh, but they they turned that corner. Well, and they're playing the way their manager wants them to now, and they're, they're pretty much fit. Let's think about less next year for a little bit. We've talked probably since December or January about how we all feel Spurs are the favorite going into next season. Great. 
Leicester now has champion champions league money and they're going to have a lot more commercial money as we're seeing they're going to be touring the united states they're going to have a lot more money from asia because of their connections there they're they really have the potential because of the unique situation they're in to solidify their place right now uh manchester city is obviously getting pep guardiola who no matter what you think about how much of an upgrade he is on manuel pellegrini he's never finished lower than second place in a league before so that's that's reason to expect that they'll compete and then I agree with you on Liverpool. And even even on the next level, Arsenal can still be title contenders next year. Manchester United is going to spend a lot of money. Chelsea is going to regroup. Can we just fast forward to next year at this point? Because I think Leicester is going to win this title. I'm ready for next season to start because as wide open as this year has been, next year looks even more wide open. I'm really excited about it. Chelsea's going to be better under Conte. They're going to retool. Pep is going to retool City to a certain extent. I don't know if they'll be better or about the same, but they won't be worse. Man United should be better. Uh, it, it, who else? Liverpool's definitely going to be better. Uh, Arsenal? I, I don't know. <laughs> this could be the year they fall out of the top four, honestly. I, unless he makes some changes. Unless he, this has woken them up and he's just not saying it now. And, and you start to see the moves that need to be made. They really need uh, another ball winner in midfield. And, and they, they have to get uh, their hands on, on uh, somebody who's going to... Uh, is going to really spread the play from, from wide areas. You know, not a guy like Walcott, who's, who's barely serviceable at times, or, or, or Ox, who's more of a, a, a central midfield player, you push out wide. Ramsey, central midfielder, you push out wide. They really need an out, out and out wide player. Uh, a guy like Amara, quite honestly. I mean, maybe that's the guy. It's, uh, it, I, I don't know. I, I, my, my sense is that Conte and Mares are sold. They're not sold within the Premier League. I think yeah. they're going to like a Bayern or a, or a Real Madrid. I, I don't think those guys, because Leicester has no need to sell those guys within the league. And if they are going to sell them and they're going to be forced by the agents or, or by the players themselves to be sold, I think they'll just ship them out. Or maybe PSG for Conte because he's French. Uh, Mars is French too, even though he I, plays for Algeria. Maybe I could see uh, something like go to PSG. I could see something where, where Juventus finally sells Pogba and they take half that money and buy Conte. I could see something like that happening. Yeah, but, right. But I, I definitely don't see Leicester selling to Arsenal. Uh, even if a player tried to force that move, Leicester, there's just not enough money to make sh- to make it so Leicester would take that deal over a comparable deal they would have from a team on the, on the continent. Uh, yeah, the, the thing that's scary about Arsenal... Yeah, and- because somebody asked me, because somebody asked me this week, oh, uh, don't you think Pep will go out and get Morris? That would be the guy that, that, that would fit like the Robin description, the Robin type player he likes on the wing. Right. So there's no, I said to this person, there's no reason for Lester to sell him within the league. <laughs> I don't think he's going to sell him to Man City. Yeah, it's sure, more, I'm sure Pep would love the guy, but that's it's not going to happen. It's more likely he would actually get Robin than get Mares. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, the scary thing for Arsenal is say Wenger does identify a player that he wants, it would have to also be a player that none of those other teams that you and I mentioned want. Because when was the last time Arsenal won a bidding war for a player that they, that Chelsea or United w- wanted also, or City wanted also? When was the last time Manchester United won? Well, we know several won? cases of we we know they were in a position where they could have triggered the release clause on Juan Mata, chose not, and then Chelsea got him a couple of weeks later. I mean, th- those there are several examples of that sort of thing happening with Arsenal. So, yeah, uh, we've seen them link with link with other players who then ended up at Chelsea. Or Man City, and uh, I, I don't know unless uh, they just have to go, uh, go for it now. I, I look, it's one thing to not win the league, 
which they're not going to win the league once again for the 11th straight year. It's another thing if you're a gooner to finish behind Spurs, which <laughs> they are almost certainly going to do at this yeah. point. And that might really be the thing that shakes everything up. Not that they finish third again. They finish third or fourth every year for the last decade, but finishing behind Tottenham. Because that's, I mean, that's the one thing they always had, right? They would get these miraculous fourth-place finishes where Spurs would finish fifth on the last day and they'd be celebrating like they'd won a cup or they'd won, uh, won the league. And they would always, the Arsenal fans' defense would always be ridicule of Tottenham. Well, clearly they don't have that anymore. And Tottenham isn't, I, I, there was an Arsenal fan who told me recently, well, Tottenham, you know, we'll have to sell everyone. No, they don't have to sell anyone anymore. No. They used to have to sell guys. I don't think Kane is going anywhere. I don't think Erickson's going anywhere. I don't think, uh, uh, Deli Ali's going anywhere. I think the core of that team is going to be together for a few more years. Although Rorel, Rorel, he's not going anywhere. Yeah. So, uh, maybe Loris goes to, uh, whatever bigger club needs a keeper, PSG maybe. But other than that, um, I don't think they're going to lose anyone. And, uh, that means they'll probably better, be better than Arsenal for the foreseeable future unless Arsenal makes the kind of big moves that Wenger has been reluctant to make. Uh, with the exception, of course, of the Alexis Sanchez move. That was a big move. Uh, but, uh, well, the, the, the Otso one, like too. Any, uh, the the, the Otso one, one, also, right. Yeah. Right. The Otso one, though, was, I think, a last-minute thing triggered by Madrid's need to, to, to right. sell people to get bail. Mm-hmm. Right? And, so and that, also... They kind of, and also, people who know Arsenal have said that Arsene Wenger had to be talked into taking Ozil at that price too. He didn't want to spend that much for Ozil. So, yeah. So I mean, I, so I don't know. I think going back to Tottenham for people that maybe have only been listening to this show for the last couple of months, we've we've talked about the unique situation with Tottenham before, and this is part of the reason we're so confident Tottenham are going to be favorites next year going to the Premier League. Is that the unique thing about their success is they aren't doing it with people that the big buyers in Europe are going to poach off of them. The, the talent that they have, you go player for player, and with the exception of Christian Eriksen, there probably isn't a player that the big spenders, the Barcelonas, Real Madrid's, Bayern's, PSG's, except for Eriksen and potentially Lloris, there aren't players that those teams would necessarily use. So there isn't the threat of losing those guys because... Tottenham doesn't have to sell within the league. They have no incentive to do that. And at this point, the players don't have much incentive to make that kind of move either. So that's part of the reason why we're so confident that Tottenham's going to go into next year as the favorite. Well, everybody, we're going to be back this weekend. To be honest with you, we're not exactly sure when. Kartik alluded to the fact that we didn't have a show on Sunday. With such a big game on Monday, we might be a day late uh, getting the podcast out. I know Stoke versus Spurs doesn't seem like a big game, but it does affect... The championship race, it does affect the race for Europa, and plus it gives us an, another day to digest the results. Either way, if you don't see the podcast in the feed on Monday morning, check back later on Monday. I'm going to be with you. Kartik potentially is going to be with you. We might have Gabe Smith with us also. Until then, for everybody at the World Soccer Talk family, I'm Richard Farley. Kartik? Enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and AudioBoom, or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737. Lawrence is L-O-Z-C-A-S-T, Lawscast. And Nipun is Nipun Chopra7. Don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email. Richard 
at worldsoccertalk.com. Okay, Kartik, I'm still recording. Um, I want to talk about Major League Soccer stuff, and I'm going to tack it on to the end of the show oh. as, as a uh, Easter egg for people that stay past the credits. And oh, we, okay, good. And we can tell people to keep listening if we want them to hear this stuff, because you and I wanted to talk about De Jong and Nagby, but there really wasn't a natural place within the show to fit it in. And plus, you and I know that a lot of people who exclusively watch the Premier League barely can tolerate us talking about Germany and Spain. They are not going to tolerate us talking about Major League Soccer. <laughs> yeah. And who knows? We might yeah. actually talk about the women's national team here, too, since there's controversy around them all the time. But let's talk about De Jong and Darlington Nagby. Um, I would normally, I would normally describe what happened on Sunday, but if you've stuck around for this part of the show, you know what controversy is going around Major League Soccer right now. And the reason we're talking about this now is we're a couple of hours from the first quotes from Bruce Arena hitting the public where Bruce Arena basically called the reaction to Sunday's, um, incident hysteria and he blamed the coverage for hyping up what was, uh, to him, uh, a bad tackle. He conceded that it, it should have possibly been a red card, but he also theorized that Darlington Nagby wasn't actually hurt on the play and that he had hurt his ankle earlier in the day and that De Jong's challenge didn't do any harm to him. I find that just, that last part just gobsmacking. I, I that's, that's kind of ridiculous. This, it's like, it's something Alex Ferguson would do to, d- to distract the press from an issue. It's like that level. Which is what Arena is doing, although Arena is right about this hysteria, Richard. I mean, I, I tweeted, you can go back on my Twitter timeline. Those of you who uh, are listening this far on the show are probably fans of uh, the, the domestic game in the U.S., and so you probably do follow me on Twitter. Uh, I said right after, this is a borderline red, shouldn't he have been sent off uh, about, at, at about 11.28 or so p.m. Eastern time, 8.30 p.m. on the West Coast. Uh, and, uh, you know, had, had a back and forth with some people saying, yeah, this was a red. This is a terrible challenge. Uh, you know, I hope they reverse it. I hope they make it a red. I hope they suspend them for, for a game or two. Go to bed because it's later in my time on the East Coast. I wake up in the morning and it's like basically De Jong has committed murder and he should be deported and, and maybe we should hang him and, and all this sort of stuff, this hysteria that somehow got, got worked up overnight, uh, uh Sunday night into Monday morning, uh, on both the East and West Coast and, uh, Richard, I mean, by that time, I had kind of, I didn't flip my position. I still said, hey, I think he should be suspended. This should be a red card with a mistake, the, the, the call. Um, it's a shame that Nagby, Nagby is a player that, uh, for U.S. Uh, soccer, for, for an American player and for, uh, MLS, it's very rare that he's good in tight spaces. He's good on the ball, although he took a bit of a heavy touch, it should be noted, uh, that led to this, but, I mean, it seemed like I had flipped my position when I had, and I had just said, okay, it was a bad tackle. It should be a red card. He should be suspended. Then the next day it was, oh, he should be thrown out of the league, and he's a thug, and he's a this. And uh, it's, and we know Nigel De Jong's history, and those of you who are Premier League fans know his history from Manchester City uh, when, when, he, when he broke Hassan Ben Arfa's leg, when he was playing for the Dutch national team, and he broke Stuart Holden's leg, and, and, uh, and, and uh, the World Cup, and... and the challenge that Howard Webb had subsequently admitted he should have been sent off for. And just kind of the physical play he brought, that edge to Manchester City and then to Milan when he went to Serie A after. But, um, no, he's not a rapist. He's not a murderer. Uh, he shouldn't be drawn and quartered. 
Uh, it was a bad tackle. He should be suspended for two or three games, and, and uh, that'll be that. So I was actually at Home Depot, well, Home Depot Center, uh, StubHub Center. There's a That's what we'll always call it. Yeah, there's there's modern soccer for you, right? You have to relearn the names of stadiums every two or three years. So I was at StubHub Center on Sunday, um, and probably the press box is the worst place to form opinions on these things because you're watching from elevated angles. You only get to see limited replays. And it wasn't until after the game when the photos started coming through that we really got to see the the real solid contact that De Jong made with Nagby's ankle. And, and at that point, I kind of thought when I saw it in real time that it was a borderline red. And eventually I went to the point where I said, you know, this is worthy of a three or four match suspension. At some point, you have to be responsible for your actions. And when you put somebody in that danger, I think you need that kind of suspension. So... I think I'm a little bit too the more strident uh, of opinions than you, but just a little bit because I'm definitely not at the point where I think this is a, a Zakawani or Morales level incident. And I think people are trying to make it into that mostly because of De Jong's reputation, which I'm not actually sure how much that should factor into any kind of assessment of punishment here. But secondly, because for some reason, Darlington Nagby has become a favorite son of the U.S. men's national team fan base, and they seem to be taking this personally. Yeah, the U.S. soccer fan is taking this very personally because, again, Nagby is a national team player. He's become the great hope of, of the national team uh, for so many people because he is a guy you can play outside, inside. He can play in center midfield, as we saw in the playoff one last year when Caleb Porter moved him to, to more or less the number 10 role uh, after having been uh, out wide uh, for so many years. He is probably the best American dribbling in tight space since Claudio Reyna, John O'Brien. I mean, he, 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 it's been a long time since the U.S. has had a player of that skill on the ball in tight spaces. So uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, hype around him. There's a lot of uh, desire to protect. And then you bring in the Nigel de Jong factor. Then you bring in the L.A. Galaxy, who are a hated team, and Bruce Arena is a hated coach. And uh, and, and um, the fact that Bruce Arena, for those of you who don't realize this, Bruce Arena has been able to somehow get Ashley Cole and Nigel De Jong to sign contracts with the Galaxy at below designated player level. They're making what Americans make in the league. You know, maybe slightly more than your, uh, your good American player. About what your good American player makes. Not your Dempsey or Altador, a lot less than they make, or Michael Bradley, but what your... Um, even less than your Graham Zussi's and your Matt Beasler's make. So, yeah. uh, because there is a culture now around the galaxy, they're a recognized club. David Beckham put them on the global map. Uh, Landon Donovan kept them there. Robbie Keane elevated it. You know, Steven Gerrard elevated. Now they're seen as a big club globally to where Ashley Cole will take a pay cut to play for them. He wouldn't take a pay cut to play for anyone else in MLS. He wouldn't, he probably wouldn't consider playing for anyone else in MLS. So there's a resentment of the galaxy. And uh, I think that that's fueled it, all of this. And, and the U.S. national team fanboy, for lack of a better term, I know it's a condescending term, but that aspect. And uh, I, let me point out one other thing. You mentioned press boxes. Uh, the previous week, you and I did a pod, uh, another show of yours, about the Portland-Orlando game. Brett Shea had committed a heinous challenge in that game where he was not sent off. Uh, Brett Shea plays from Orlando. I was at the game. I covered the game. I did a pod with you the next night. Didn't mention the challenge. I had remembered it, and I just remembered it as being this, you know, hard challenge in the 15th minute. I hadn't seen a replay. MLS uh, then uh, retroactively made it a red card. I watched the replay. I'm like, oh, my goodness. How could I have not have noticed that in the press box? Mm -hmm. uh, and then on the replay screen in the press box, that was a straight red any day of the week. So basically, I think a lot of times, Richard, you and I have found in the last two weeks, 
when you're in press boxes and you're covering a game and it's bang bang and then there's a replay but you're also like writing your match story or tweeting something about the match at the same time um we don't do as well as the people who are watching at home on television do in Absolutely. picking up on some of these things quite frankly which might be why uh some of our analysis of the premier league here in the united states uh, watching off of monitors is better than some of the guys at the games. Uh, Kyle Martino does such a good job in the NBC studio. He does a better job. He and Robbie Earl and uh, Robbie Musto did a be- do a better job than their counterparts in the UK on, on British television, quite frankly, who were at stadium sites. So there's something to be said for that. We're still left in a situation where, because MLS is a universe where they've accepted that retroactive review punishment is something that helps the game, And that's something I believe, too. We're left in a universe where people have time to let their biases seep in. And for me, and I'm supposed to write about this tonight, I'm kind of talking about this out loud. Uh, Maybe you'll have a point that I can incorporate into my column. Uh, For me, it becomes philosophically dubious how to untangle our biases from judgment when we, we don't really have control over it. A lot of these biases are subconscious, are are. For a lot of people, when they react to Nagby getting hurt by De Jong, there's this confluence of unconscious factors that that fuel their ire. Is it really reasonable to expect that the league and the disciplinary committee are immune to that? Or, or they're immune to the biases that go with trying to make a credible decision in the face of that ire? Yeah, I think that there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of questions this year about PRO, the, uh, the uh, officials here in the United States, run by Peter Walton, former Premier League official, uh, a good one too, a good official, and, and he's doing the best he can with with PRO. But uh, there've been there've been a rash of red cards. Uh, there were 12 straight reds in the first uh, 36 or 30 34 MLS games of the season. There were three straight reds in the first four NASL games of the season. Uh, similar kind of numbers in, in USL as well. I don't have the exact numbers there. So uh, this rash of red cards, and, and then. So then there was this furor about all the red cards. So then you have officials trying consciously not send guys off. And then the two weeks since then in MLS, we've had these two incidents, the Breck Shea incident in the Portland-Orlando game, which should have been a straight red, very early in the game, changed, would have changed the complexion of the game. And then, of course, this, uh, this uh, situation in this game with, um, with uh, uh, Beyond, albeit that was late in the game, probably wouldn't have changed the result. Uh, bo- both situations for Portland, the reigning champions, have felt hard done. So um, when you start to scrutinize officials and say that they're, they're over-regulating the game, then you have this nat- nat- natural pullback from officials, and then the disciplinary committee has to get involved and reverse those calls from officials. So it's, uh, it's a tough balancing act we have here. And we, we have a situation where uh, we publish the name of, of every referee that are going to call game, that are going to uh, take, take control of games and their assistant referees and the fourth official early in the week. Uh, the NASL, the second division, which I used to work for, tried to pull out of that this week uh, and got so much backlash that they they reinstated it. So for one week, the NASL official assignments weren't post, uh, posted publicly until the day before the game. Uh, now uh, they're, they're going to revert to posting them on Tuesdays for games on Saturdays and Sundays. There's so much. And, you know, Richard, this is kind of a symptom of, of maybe the British game. Uh, you and I used to talk years ago about how in England they would publish the names of referees in papers and referees would become stars and uh, yeah. everybody knew the referee staff and that, who was going to take control of which game. That's now happened in the United States. And the referees themselves are stars. I mean, we talk about Mark Geiger and Ted Uncle and Shire Marufo all the time. I mean, it happens. Yeah. A lot of my conversations, I should say half, but so many of my conversations with my friends, not 
Twitter people or, or people that I interact with specifically uh, on, on certain subjects in the game, but my friends in, around the game end up inevitably coming to these referees. And it's not just, oh, the referee was terrible. He made this mistake. It was always, we know the name of the referee. and We know the history of the referee. And it wasn't like that in the United States five years ago. So I think it's all part and parcel of something bigger going on. And I'm not sure if it's healthy or unhealthy. It's just evolution, I guess. The other thing I wanted to bring up, and my editor didn't like this angle, but I think it's, um, it's one that I, I struggle with all the time is, you know, Whenever things like this happen, you'll hear people say, you know, people know this is a contact sport. They know they can get hurt, et cetera, et cetera. I just can't think of any place in life besides certain sports, not even all sports, certain sports where you're allowed to be so careless with people's safety. Even taken to Young's tackle this week, and I think you and I agree that it wasn't malicious. There was no intent to injure behind it. It I, for me, it was just an attempt to stop a counterattack, a cynical one at that. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't come in with with the reckless uh, and overwhelming force. That's the reason why this is not should be a ten or fifteen game suspension, like all these people are wanting. It was. Uh, it was. A, yeah, it was a professional foul that was hard. That was attempted to, to break up a counter late in the game where the Galaxy were trying to hold on to a point. That's as simple as that. Yeah, but he still he still came over the ball, and I I know the challenge he was trying to yeah, make because studs were still out. Right, he, out, he was so basically he trying he was trying to put his foot down right in front of Nagby, so Nagby would be forced to run into his body, run into his shoulder and hip. And unfortunately, he miss he misplaced his foot, and he almost broke Darlington Nagby's ankle. I can't think of any kind of place in society other than. Soccer, foot, uh, NFL football, some other sports where you're allowed to be so so casual about another person's safety. And I mean, maybe people are going to look at this as being too soft and you know wanting to put all our children in plastic bubbles so they don't touch any any germs or anything. But I just don't know that soccer needs to be a game where we have to be that casual about things. We already have things that are very hard to legislate. Like when two people go up for an aerial challenge, it's very difficult to legislate that. I don't know why we can't be very strict about don't slide into somebody, don't foul somebody in this situation because you're stopping you're stopping a play that's still 45 yards from goal. I mean, can't we just let this go? And if you don't think you can let it go, just know that the league does not in any way condone you taking a one percent risk with another player's health simply because you want to stop a counterattack. I I don't know if that's a, that bad of a world to live in if we are that strict about being respectful of people's health. Right, and of course, then you'll have all these people, uh, particularly in England, who say, well, you know, when I played, uh, that wasn't even a foul. <laughs> you get that all, time and time again when you watch these Premier League games, and now it's a red card. And so that's uh, that's the balancing act, right? But I think uh, we're further ahead in the United States in looking at player health and, and player welfare as a consideration uh, and, and possible head injuries. So... Uh, I, I have no problem with over legislating if, if a guy's uh, safety is, is uh, in uh, in danger. We saw several years ago MLS give a 10 game suspension for a leg break. Brian Mullen, who was not a dirty player historically, uh, a player that uh, I think Mullen has probably won as many MLS cups as anyone. He, in some cases, he was on the right foot at the right time, but he was he, uh, at least on those uh, San Jose teams, San Jose Houston teams, a guy that um, mm-hmm. contributed mightily to their success and. Um, his career kind of it's been remembered now for this light break. Uh, Steve Zakawani was a promising, uh, a promising, exciting attacking player for Seattle at the time. So 
um, he got the book thrown at him, and it, it, it's the kind of suspension you wouldn't see in another country, right? You wouldn't see that in the Premier League. It'd be a three-game yeah. suspension. That's it. Uh, uh, Mario Balotelli broke uh, Bakari Sania's leg. He got a three-game suspension. I mean, there were there were several. De Jong broke Hazard uh, Ben Arfa's leg. He got a three-game suspension. I'm just giving Man City examples. Because those are the ones I remember. But there's several examples like that uh, in the Premier League. And so we've taken it seriously in the United States, but. Um, I guess there is another side of it, which is the competitiveness of, of, of the sport. I don't think the Young challenge raises that level. Yes, he almost did seriously injure Nagy, but I don't think that was his intent. He didn't go in with a lot of force. He he was a clumsy in the process of trying to, to break up a, a quick counterattack that was coming late in the game where they were trying to hold on to a point. All right, Kartik. Well, I will talk to you at some point this weekend. Uh, for people who have listened to this Easter egg, there's a potential that I will record with Kartik on Saturday and talk to him about Saturday's Premier League games because he's going to be uh, he's going to be in Orlando covering MLS. I'm actually going to be in Portland covering MLS too. Although I'll because of the time difference, I will be able to potentially record with Gabe. Uh, this show or there's a possibility that the three of us or maybe the two you and I will record on Monday and use the Monday game as an excuse to record a day later but uh I'll talk to you then Kartik nice talking to you man thank you Richard hi I'm Daniel founder of Pretty Litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy so I created Pretty Litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.